Father, we pray for your blessing today as the Redskins face Tom Brady. In your name we pray, amen. You all are heathens. I'm among heathens. <laughs> oh, man. All right. Let's jump in. And I already know my kids already told me I look weird without a beard, so you don't have to say it. They already told me, so. That's what happens when you get older and you shave, you look younger, but I wasn't trying to look younger. My barber just took it a little too far, but it comes, that's just how it goes. I mean, no, I have no desire to look younger or be younger. I'm good. Life is, life is what it is, and I want to see the Lord. So I ain't trying to go backwards. I'm trying to move forward. Now, see, if we was a different kind of church, I might go off on a tangent and be like, we want to press towards the Lord instead of going backwards. I wouldn't even preach. I do that. Y'all get excited. In 20 minutes, we'll pray. That's not how we do church here. All right, we are back in the book of Romans. Two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I explained, as we talked about Romans 9, 10, and 11, that, that all of Romans is about soteriology, which is salvation. But in particular, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, Paul is really trying to explain how salvation works. He, it's, a, it's the soteriological part of the book, which means... Salvation. Paul is making sure that, that, that the church in Rome understands what salvation means and who salvation belongs to. And in his day and age, there was a great discrepancy that Romans 9 seeks to alleviate. Two weeks ago, we talked about this discrepancy of why are some of the Gentiles saved, but some of the Jews are not. And the Jews would have been historically, exclusively the people of God. But now, things have changed. So we looked at that two weeks ago and talked about that Paul's main objective was to explain that it's God's choice on who real Israel is. That it wasn't necessarily about what we commonly know as the doctrine of election, that we think of it as individual election. That's not Paul's argument. His point is the fact that there are Gentiles that are saved, it was God's choice before they did anything good or bad. He's making an argument in these three chapters, 9, 10, and 11, to explain this dilemma. It's not a dilemma for us because we didn't grow up in the age that they did. It's a dilemma for them because they're trying to figure out and understand how is it that people who have been the people of God, Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, are no longer considered the people of God. And how are people who have grown up and essentially rejected God, their whole existence on the earth, are now included into the family of God? In chapter 9, Paul explained that it was God's decision to allow them, to choose them to be a part of that plan of salvation. Well, in chapter 10, he begins to explain why the Jews. So Romans 9, we get God's part. Romans 10, Paul explains the Jewish side. What did the Jews do to not be included in the plan of salvation? We're going to start at verses Romans 9.30. And read to Romans 10, verse 5, and our primary passage will be verses 1 through 5 as we walk through 
this narrative. Beginning at 930, and I quote, I am reading from the CSB translation. Here's what he says. What should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. But, in, but Israel, pursuing the righteousness, the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. Quickly, Paul is identifying Jesus as a problem. Because for the Jews, it's a stumbling block. Because, well, we're already God. Why do we have to believe again? Why do I have to believe again? We've already, I mean, we, we deal with this on other levels. You ever, you ever had your phone and the app and you got to sign in again? And you frustrated? Yeah. Maybe it's just me. No. I'm like, man, what is wrong? What's up with this update? This is a down date. This is supposed to be an update. This is a down day. Why do I got to put it on? Then you forget your password and you're like, oh, man, now I got to create a new password. Let me, don't let me go on a tangent about passwords and testify to the Lord. Here. Right? We get frustrated at having to sign in again to an app that we're used to doing it automatically. So imagine being a Jew and saying, I have to believe again. When I've been a believer all this time, I thought. Paul continues in our, in our passage today, beginning in verse 1 of Romans 10. He says, brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them is for their salvation. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, not according to knowledge. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempt to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Since Moses writes about that righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by them. Let's pray. Not for the skins, but for our skin. Father, we sometimes read these verses and we don't always relate. They seem outdated to us because it's just not the cultural dynamic that we're in. We read this stuff and we hear it and we think, oh, man, I don't even know what he's saying. I can't relate to this. I, I, I beg to differ this morning, but I believe that we'll see in this passage some one-to-one -one examples for us to learn from today. So I pray, Lord, as I explain what you're saying to this church in Rome, I pray that you would give me clarity to explain what you're saying to this church in Riverdale. For your word does not come back void, and you have something very specific to say to us by way of helping us understand the dilemma of the Jews in this particular scene. May you guide me and may you open the hearts and ears of those that you intend to. For no matter my personality or my 
ability to communicate. It doesn't matter. I'm not that effective. You don't need me. The reality is if you don't impress upon the hearts of the people that are listening, it doesn't matter how I communicate it. So you don't need me, but since you chose to use me, I pray that you would let them benefit, those, your sons and daughters, as I have benefited in studying this passage and thinking about my own issues. May each of us, like the disciples, ask, is it me, Lord, for your glory and our good? In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's dump him. Let's dive in. You know, there are times when I ask this question. I've asked this question. As a matter of fact, even in the bitterness series, I asked you all this question. What makes your obedience distinctly Christian? Like there are Jehovah's Witness, the building next door, Mormons, all these people. They, these people knock on, they evangelize more than many of us. Yeah. I bet you the Jehovah's Witness next door have knocked on more doors to share their faith than the majority of us in this room. So what makes when we do it different than when they do it? Muslims pray five times a day in the direction east of where Mecca is, the holy city. They may pray more in a day than we do. So what makes what we do distinctly Christian? Why are we different when we do these things? Today's passage is going to explain why I ask that question from time to time. This passage is going to reveal why I want us to consider that question and think about it so that we can stay proverbially on our toes. Let's look at verse 1 again. Here's what he says. He begins this portion of the letter by saying, Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God concerning them, the Israelites, is for their salvation. So here Paul begins again with his concern as he did in Romans 9, and it's rooted in a love for his people. He loves these people and he wants them to be saved. So Paul is essentially saying in this verse that he's praying to God that they would be saved. He's genuinely asking God to save these people. Now the fact that Paul says of their salvation gives us an indication of the makeup of the Roman church. It was largely a non-Jewish church. So Paul is saying their salvation instead of yours because the people that are mostly he's talking to are not people who are Jewish, but he wants to make sure that he, they understand that God and he loves these people still, that they still will be and can be saved. Now, they may not have made this connection when they read this letter, and maybe they did, but if nothing else, what they should take away from this is that they should love people who are not saved and genuinely desire their conversion. We should love people that are not saved and genuinely desire their conversion. Paul begins this by saying brothers and sisters. So the primary family identity for Paul is not Jews saved because of the exodus. It's Jews saved because of the resurrection. Yeah. See, Jews saved because of the exodus are all mostly ethnic Jews, people of the, who are related to Abraham by physical descent, through family line, through his 12 children, or grandchildren, two of them. 
Paul's talking to brothers and sisters who are his family because they were saved by the resurrection. They believe in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile. He starts off by explaining that he has a concern for them, that his desire is that they would know the Lord. But then in verse 2, he begins to get specific about his concerns as he says this. I can testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So he says, I can testify. Basically, what he's saying is, I know this to be true. I'm giving my own. I'm, when he says testify, he's kind of talking about it the way we do. Let me testify to the Lord. Somebody got to testify. <laughs> can somebody tell their experience right now to encourage the church? What Paul is saying, I can give you my experience here. That they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This is a very, very, very important statement. He says they have zeal for God. That means a deep concern or devotion to God. When you have zeal, it's an intense, positive interest in something. At one o'clock today, I intend to be sitting in section 216, row 8, seat 1, besides two Joshes. And I'm the only Skins fan out of the three. Grace is amazing. And I will yell, I will scream. When we score, I will celebrate with people that I've never met in my life. I may never see again. That's zeal, intense passion. But Paul says they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So it's possible to have zeal for God but it be wrong. This is what Paul is saying. These are his words. These are God's words, not mine. He said it's not according to knowledge. It's not based on accurate information about God. Their zeal for God is based on something else, not the information that God has instructed them to have. They have an accurate understanding of something, and it's connected to God somehow, but it doesn't connect to what God is requiring of them. How can you have a zeal for God, but then be wrong? He explains a little bit more in verse 3. Here's what he says. He says, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Verse 2, verse 3. Since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness, they have not submitted to God's righteousness. Let's break this down. Three different things that he says here. First, they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, in most cases, now in our day and age, the word ignorant is like a bad thing. Man, you're just ignorant. And normally that means how a person acts. You're just acting a fool. You're acting crazy. That's not what he means here. 
the biblical definition or the actual definition for ignorant just means simply I'm unaware of the obvious. I'm unaware. I don't recognize it. I'm ignorant. I don't understand it. But Paul's not using ignorant in that way because he said they have a zeal for God. So they're not ignorant that they don't recognize God and the obvious nature of God, even things that God requires. This isn't I don't recognize it. This isn't the ignoring. I don't recognize the obvious. Paul is saying they're ignoring the obvious. They're disregarding the reality. He says they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. They are ignoring, they're giving little attention to what God says is the way to be righteous to honor me. So it's possible to have zeal for God and not do it in a way that connects with what he says is righteous in honoring him. The next thing he says is they attempted to establish their own righteousness. So they set up their own righteousness. They are living according to their own righteousness. Now, we don't use the, righteous, the word righteous often. We don't use that word in this, in this modern day and age. Only in usually theological context, church context, do you use the word righteousness. So let's just for the moment, let's just say morality, good and evil. Righteousness is about doing good things, about obedience. It's about obedience. You obey God. Good and evil. God said this is good. God said this is evil. I'm going to do what he said was good. I'm going to resist what he said is evil. That's simply what a righteousness is. And he says that they attempted to establish their own righteousness. Now, we know this to be the case. We know this isn't new. We know this back from Genesis 3. This is the foundation. Paul is talking about the Jews here, but in reality, this is a human condition. This isn't a Jewish condition. He's applying it to the Jews because he's trying to help the Gentiles understand the soteriological framework between the Jews and the Gentiles and how they come together. What Paul is describing is not a human, it's a human condition, not a Jewish condition. We know this from Genesis 3. Verse 2, Satan, the serpent, the woman said to the serpent in Genesis 3, it's on the board, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. And then Satan says, no, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, listen to what he says in verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The knowing means deciding or determining good and evil. So when Eve bites the fruit and Adam bites it, it says their eyes were open and they realized that they were naked. They came to a decision of knowing what and deciding what good and evil is apart from what God said it was. And that's the human condition. If you want to know what sin is, sin is simply I decide good and evil apart from God. Every time you sin, every time I sin, whether it feels like I planned it or it just happened, I'm making a choice based on a definition of good. It's, it's good to do this and it's evil not to. That's fundamentally what sin is. All these other theological categories at the end of the day, it's just this is what God, this is what Satan tempted Eve with. He didn't say, man, aren't you hungry? Doesn't the apple look incredible? The fruit or whatever it was? I said, apple. 
seen too many movies. The apple. You know what kind of fruit it was. Whatever the fruit was, it doesn't matter what the fruit was. It's what, what it caused. So all of us have a desire to define good and evil on our own. He says they attempted to establish their own righteousness. So God set a new standard. Remember, God gave them the law of Moses. That was what God said do. But the Jews knew that another prophet was coming. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 on down. Moses says, God will send another prophet like me and you must listen to him. The Jews knew this throughout their history. That's why they were asking even John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Are you the one we're waiting for? Are you the Messiah? They knew someone else is coming, similar to Moses, that is going to explain what we do. So even though God gave them the law of Moses, Moses told them before you go into the promised land that another prophet is coming and going to explain to you. So they knew that that was not the end of the law, what Moses said. Another prophet was coming, and that's what they were waiting for. Is he the prophet? And Jesus showed up and said, I am he. The Jews knew this. So for them, God reestablished what righteousness was by sending Jesus, teaching them, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and then sending his spirit to remind people and empower people to live righteously. But these people here rejected that. For whatever reason, they wanted to keep trying to obey the law of Moses, even though they didn't do it perfectly. So when Paul says they're ignorant, I agree, but I also think they're arrogant because they think that they can keep the law that God commanded, even though they've proven time and time again they can't. Most people can't even hold to their New Year's resolution. I'm one of them. I stopped making them like 10 years ago. Like, for what? He says this third thing. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. The implication here is that they're choosing to ignore the righteousness that God has provided for them. And even though they were sincere, it doesn't matter. Commentary on this particular part said this, which I appreciate. It said, sincerity is not enough. If we are in the wrong, no matter how sincerely we believe we are doing right, we are going astray. The Jews were doing that, Paul says, because they were in the wrong about God's righteousness. We know this to be true in many other situations. You ever had to talk to someone about something they did, and they say, but that's not what I meant to do. That's not what I meant. Okay, understandable. But it's what you did, though. I know you didn't, maybe you didn't mean for this to happen, but it happened because you did this. There's still consequences for that. That's a reality. Paul explains why their own pursuit of morality, being a good person, is wrong when he says this in verse 4. He says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He's the end of the law. Whatever standard of morality. So the God's law is all, look, God is the platform, right? God is the platform. God is the standard. 
That's why people who think they're the God, they have a God complex, right? Because they think they're gods. You hear about these doctors who save people's lives and they have a God complex. I've saved 70 people's lives. God is the platform. He's the context. He's the standard. He's the end of it. And so he says Christ is the end of it, of the law. So whatever standard of morality that exists out there, Christ is the end of it. Because he obeyed God's law perfectly. He said he's the standard. Since Moses, verse 5, since Moses writes about the righteousness that is from the law, the one who does these things will live by, will live by them. So he's saying, look, Christ is the end of the law because he's the only one that was able to live by them. He's the only one. Not that people didn't try. The Bible tells us David was a man after God's own heart, but we saw some of the sins that David did. John the Baptist was, was chosen. I mean, he leapt in his womb at six months old, and then John the Baptist is in prison and says, man, ask Jesus, is he the Messiah or not? Sincerity, eternally speaking, is not enough. If you are trying to pursue a righteousness outside of what God has required. Christ is the end of the law because he fulfilled it perfectly. And God is willing to let others who trust in Jesus get the credit for that perfect obedience that he did because they humble themselves and believe in Jesus. Let's stop for a second, because I think we hear that a lot, and it just becomes, okay, 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 but think about what it means to actually believe in Jesus. People say, like, Jesus is counter-cultural. No, Jesus is counter-humanity. He transcends all cultures, right? What Jesus is done, has done is not cultural. It's, 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 it's transhuman. When you believe in Jesus... You are saying, I don't believe in myself. Now, in the culture we live in, self-confidence is everything, right? Believe in yourself. Forgive yourself. All these different things. But when it comes to morality, righteousness of God, eternity, no, don't believe in yourself. That's actually the problem, not the solution. When you say, I believe in Jesus, you're saying, I don't believe in myself. That you, we accept God's evaluation of us more than our own evaluation of ourselves. We've talked about this plenty of times. When you talk to people and they think, well, why do I need to believe in God? I'm a good person. I don't. Because they're comparing themselves to who? Other people, their former selves. You see, what keeps us humble is we don't compare ourselves to one another. We're always better than someone else. I'm always a better dad than someone, a better husband than someone, a better Christian than someone. But I'm never those things when I compare myself to the scriptures. Believers compare ourselves to scriptures. We're always better than someone else. Why do bullies make fun of the kid that they can beat up? I've never seen a bully who's 5'9", step to a dude that's 6'5", and be like, what's up now, fam? Unless he's got 20 dudes behind him. You don't step to somebody that can whoop you. You pick on the person who can't because we're always better than someone else. So we compare ourselves to the scriptures and think, mm, yeah, I failed that one. 
I'm not there yet. I'm not even sure I like this right now. When we believe in Jesus, we accept things like we hate. People hate being told they're not good enough. For all my people who play sports, remember the anxiety about tryouts, whatever it is. And that might not even be sports. It could be anything that you got you to work hard to get. You take a test. And they used to always, all right, post the names on the board in the hallway. And you got to walk up and see if you're on the list. Is my name there? And you see people walk by like, yes. And then you would think, well, shoot, I'm better than him. He, if he made it, I definitely made it. <laughs> I know I'm better than him. And so you walk up, go through. You don't see your name. Let me get closer and look again. The words didn't change. It's not, it's not, it's, this isn't Soul Train where you mix the words up and then you, you know. Don Cornelius is not there. The words are the same. For those of you who don't know what that means, Google Soul Train. The words are the same. Your name's not on the list, and it feels terrible. When it comes to glorifying God apart from Christ, our names are not on the list. We're not good enough. So when we believe in Jesus, we're, we're admitting to that. We're saying we're not good enough. Since you've provided Jesus for us, we're going to believe in him. You're saying, I'm not going to trust my definition of good and evil. And that is the Christian life. It's a life of not trusting my definition of good and evil until the end. And that's what you persevere through. You don't persevere because Christianity is easy. You persevere because it's challenging. And what's challenging about Christianity is I don't want to do what God said do. This is our reality. The Jews had the law of God and then they got Jesus. How did this happen? How did they miss this? Why would trying to keep the law and having to sacrifice all these animals be more attractive than believing in Jesus? I can't prove what I'm about to say from Scripture, but this is what I think happened with the Jews. I honestly believe that the sacrificial system that God set up to have sins forgiven confuse them as to the seriousness of what God was requiring in the law. Because there was grace to forgive you when you fail, I think they thought, okay, failure happens, we get a couple of goats, some doves, sprinkle them on the altar, and we just keep it moving. And by, by what happens is the standard that God has set seems like it doesn't really matter to him because he's going to forgive you for not keeping it anyway. So somehow the grace of God and not punishing us for sinning became the lowering of the standard allowing us to sin. In fact, Paul makes this argument in Romans 6. What should we say then? Should we sin because grace is more abundant? By no means. He's pushing back against that human condition. Oh, well, shoot, if I'm forgiven, then God is cool with me sinning on some level. Like, why wouldn't we sin more if there's more grace when we do so? Right. So, because that's not the way that it works. See, forgiveness is a get-out-of-jail-free card, not a changing of the law. It doesn't change that jail exists. In Romans 10, Paul's explaining to the church that's in Rome, the problem with having zeal for God, but it not be based on an accurate knowledge of God, which for them was faith in Jesus. 
So how does that apply to us? Because most of us here believe in Jesus. You're not a, a Jew who is trying to keep the law. We are Christians. What do we take from this? Because this isn't me. Remember, what Paul is describing here is not a Jewish condition. He's describing a human condition. And if we step back and look at what he's describing, we can see that this is more than what was happening in Second Temple Judaism. It's possible to have a misplaced zeal for God. These people did not believe in God. They just didn't believe in what he said do. It is possible to have a misplaced zeal for God and in reality not obey him. This isn't just the Jews. It's you can believe in Jesus and yet still obey on your terms. You can obey Jesus on your terms and in reality may not be obeying him at all. I believe there's a passage in Matthew 7 where they said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do mighty works in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name? In other words, weren't we doing things like you? Weren't we obeying you? And they said, depart from me. I never knew you. It is possible to have zeal for God, to be a Christian, to know who God is, to know what God requires and still do our own thing. This is why I asked the question, what makes our obedience distinctly Christian? So let me change the question to, is our obedience the obedience that God is commanding or an obedience that we're comfortable with? One of the ways we get around this today, I know I've done this. I've done this plenty, and I'm ashamed of this. As I was reading this, I was like, wow, Lord, why you always tell me stuff? Now, why didn't you tell me this 15 years ago? <laughs> it was there, my son. You just, <laughs> you just chose to do your own thing and didn't see it. One of the ways that we get around this is, and people do this a lot, Christians and non-Christians, ignore the consequences of righteousness apart from God. Ignore the consequences. So we minimize or flat out disagree that there's any punishment that God's going to give people to good people. So you hear, well, why, why does God let things happen to good people? Okay, we have to define what we mean by good and who's determining that. But we minimize the consequences of it. Another thing we do, we minimize the standard, which I talked about. In this culture, love and forgive means approve, never punish. But discipline is a part of God's love for his people. That's Hebrews 12, right? God disciplines those he loves his sons. Normally, normally, normally. Let me not say normally. I've seen people who say, well, I didn't get disciplined at all when I grew up. And it's like, I can tell. <laughs> Why is it? Well, I just, I'm not, I didn't want to just, I didn't want to touch my kid and hit them. Okay, cool. So they grew up untouchable. We might remix that. You got people who just arrogant, can't take no, get offended easily, all this stuff, because you ain't hear that when you was little. You didn't get disciplined when you were younger. You, you thought you, the world is yours. No, that's a, that was a, a, a Goodyear blimp slogan that was in Scarface. No, the reality is the world is the devil's. 
I don't want this world. I want the one who created it, not the one who's currently in charge of it. And don't misunderstand. I understand God's sovereign, but he's Satan is called the prince of the earth. 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world. The most, the most clear way that we get around this idea of I believe in Jesus, I understand what he's called me to do, but I'm going to do my own thing as we presume on grace. As long as we profess to believe, we can live somewhat arbitrary to what God has commanded. Now, many of you would say, I, no, I don't, I don't agree with that. I know what I do. I just, I'm not talking about intellectual. I'm talking about functional. This happens to me all the time on Facebook. I'll post something just a thought, and then people will get offended. And they'll be like, man, who says that? I'm not talking about what we say, bro. I'm talking about what we do. Even the world knows actions speak louder than words, right? When I'm not talking about what we intellectually think. No one here is going to think, well, I don't got to believe God. I can do whatever I want to do. But then what does it look like functionally? Jesus said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me, right? So we're not talking about what we say and intellectually think. We're talking about what we do. How we live reveals what we believe. And we can presume on grace. Let me just give you a list of, of possibilities, things that I know that I fail in these, and probably every one of these, every one of these. Christianity does not teach love people unless they hurt you. But many of us struggle with that. Love people unless they offend you. Christianity doesn't teach that. So if you live that, that's your righteousness, not the righteousness that God requires. Christianity doesn't teach forgive people after they've earned it. It doesn't teach that. Jesus earned our forgiveness. Why are we making people earn theirs? Now, we went over the bitterness series. I'm not going to answer any questions about that. We talked about all of this in the bitterness series. I answered a lot of questions on it. I'm making a point that's real. The Bible doesn't say treat people the way they treat you. It says treat them the way you want to be treated. It never says do that if they do the same to you. That's all righteousness versus what God commands. The Bible doesn't say don't ask for forgiveness if they don't ask you for forgiveness. It doesn't teach that. But boy, isn't that a challenge? How many times, you know how many times I've been like, man, they don't never ask for forgiveness though. Or they don't do it as often or something. I'm comparing myself and I will talk myself out of being obedient to the spirit because they don't ask for forgiveness as much as I think they should. But what fruit of the spirit is that? What verse does that come from? Brothers and sisters, we have to make sure that our righteousness comes from what we believe, not how we feel. Because the Jews felt a certain way and they rejected Jesus. We can feel a certain way and reject the morality that Jesus commands and could one day be told, you wasn't a believer? I'm not trying to hurt anybody's assurance of their salvation. That's not the point. We all struggle. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm saying is we have to constantly make our calling and election sure. 
The Bible doesn't say, husbands, love your wives when you're in the mood to have sex. Oh, let me start a conflict today. <laughs> hey, my wife recently corrected me for this. Last week she said this to me. I disagreed, not with what she was saying. I disagreed that I did it. We had a great conversation. But she brought this to my attention. I was like, okay. It's easy to be more gracious and gentle and loving and when you want something from that person. That's just selfish. The Bible doesn't say wives submit to your husband when they make you feel appreciated. What fruit is this? What verse is that? I know plenty of wives who withhold physical intimacy from their husbands because they don't treat them a certain way. And I get that it's challenging to do that, but where, where, the Bible doesn't say that. 1 Corinthians 7 says the opposite of that. It says the devil will gain a foothold if you two play around with that. The Bible doesn't say children obey your parents unless you don't like what they're asking you to do. It doesn't say that. You see, that's all righteousness. I feel I don't like this. I don't like the way they said this. I don't like the way they make me feel. I don't like this. I don't like this. And Christianity does not say you can do that. God is patient and he's gracious, but not so that we can keep saying, well, I don't have to do what he said do. At some point, the consequences will come and they will hurt. Husbands, if you treat your wives a certain way, they will, it will affect them. Wives, if you treat your husbands a certain way, it will affect them. It's, it's amazing to me in relational dynamics how people think that their sin against each other has no impact on each other. Are you serious? I don't care who you are, what role you play. If you sin against someone and you're a Christian, they're going to be affected by that. It's a, it's, it's, there's no way around it. If parents are always angry at their children and always correcting their children and yelling at their children, you think them children are going to want to humbly obey you? No. But if you're a child and you think your parent is supposed to say yes to everything you do and approve of everything you're asking for, are you serious? The Bible doesn't say love your neighbor when they have the same values as you. It doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't say it's okay to be in a sexual relationship because you genuinely love the person. It doesn't teach that. It seems obvious, right? But all of us that are even laughing right now know people who do this. There may be people in this room who do this. I hope you don't laugh when you talk to them. Amen. These are serious things. And all of us, myself included, I have a zeal for God. I know what he commands, but I, and it's not that we fail at times. It's I don't want to make a habit of living this way. The Bible has grace. Come on, God knows who we are. He knows we're going to fail. That's not the issue. The issue isn't perfection here. It's direction. I don't want this to be my life. That my life consists of a zeal for God based on a righteousness that I'm comfortable with. That is not why Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. A cross is about suffering. 
Sometimes obeying God is suffering. Sometimes obeying a wife submitting to her husband is a real challenge for her. Sometimes a husband having to love his wife is a real challenge for him. It's a challenge for your kids to obey you. Why? Because of the human condition. No one is unique. We're all in need of the grace and morality that Jesus provided on the cross. The standard for obedience to God always has to be done perfectly. So the question is, is the obedience of what God commanded, is that what you do? Or is it obedience that you're comfortable giving God? Are we Cain or Abel? You see, the struggle for many of us is not believing in Christ. It's not believing in the morality that he says we should have. You know we're only called to take up a cross because Jesus died on one. We must not be among those who have a zeal for God, but not according to his knowledge. We are no different than these Israelites if that's what we do. It's not, okay, I struggle with sin. We're not talking about that. We're talking about a heart that is comfortable in the sin that you're struggling with or that has a low view of the consequences of sin. Jesus died for some of the sins that we laugh at. They're not funny to him. And by his grace, we have to grow in them not being funny and acceptable to us. Our righteousness is to do what he said do, not what we feel comfortable doing. Or we'll be like Israel, zeal for God, but not according to the knowledge of God. It's not that we don't sin. That's not what I'm saying. It's that we don't ignore the commands to not sin. Don't ignore what God has commanded you, especially just because we're forgiven for we're failing. The forgiveness encourages us to keep going. You're a soccer coach. When somebody does something bad in the game, one of your girls, you got a couple options, right? You can scream at them and make them feel terrible, or you encourage them and tell them, get out there and do what you do. I know you. You do both. But when those girls, when you encourage them and empower them, they go back out there and go hard, right? Score a goal, two, three goals, hat trick, win the game. Or lose, but you inspire them to do. It's different. It's different. We, we need to be encouraged. The, the forgiveness of God is God saying, keep going. You're forgiven. Keep going. It's not saying stop going because you're forgiven. I'm good if you don't make it. Nah. It's I die to help you make it. Back to the context, Paul is is showing the difference in the righteousness of God in the law of Moses that they were trying to keep. And going forward in verses 6 through 13, he shows the difference in the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. Now, we have faith in Jesus. But we want to make sure that the righteousness, our, our obedience, is based on what he commands, not just what we feel comfortable 
giving for his glory and our good. Let's pray. Father, I know I am. I'm sure others feel this way, guilty of this. And it's not that we can't sin or don't struggle with sin. We get that. That's not what we're talking about. It's that we don't become comfortable and ignore the commands not to sin and live a life where we feel like we're in a good place, but we're just comfortable sinning in ways that you are not. We're comfortable allowing habits and patterns and just become who we are or who people are, but you are not. That's not what you command. The grace that you've given us is amazing, and that grace encourages us to keep going, not to stop going. We persevere to the end because we're forgiven. We don't take our time getting to the end. Father, help wherever this, wherever this lands, this might not be everyone's situation. I know at times this can be me, but it might not be everyone. But Lord, wherever this is applicable to your sons and daughters, you know better than I do. I pray that you would help them to latch on to this and to continue with the zeal based on your death and resurrection. It's your perfect morality that gives us confidence to strive to be imitators of God, as you said in Ephesians 5.1. Help us to imitate you. And help us, not in a self-righteous way, but to not be people who have a zeal for you. They know you. They know the theology of you. But they don't have the character of you. I see all over the place in social media so many, so many solid social media theologians <laughs> and so many just by their posts and name calling just, just show that the fruit of the spirit that's supposed to be in them seems lacking. Father, may we, by your glory, for your glory and by your grace, be those who have a zeal for you based on accurate knowledge of you that leads to a pursuit of accurate obedience to you. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Juan is doing questions today. If anything comes through. That's right. If not, we jumping right to communion, baby. Yes. Amen. Thanks, Kurt, for that message. Um, so we're still uh, waiting for some questions, but I actually yeah. wanted to maybe get you started with. So if um, there is someone, if there is someone who um, is wondering about how to, how to start, right, how to get that first step, so maybe you're realizing, you know, I have zeal, there's areas that I'm not happy about. What sort of a first step you would say to sort of take? So you ever heard this phrase like Christianity is a relationship, it's not a religion? I think we say, I think we believe that theoretically, but I don't know if we think about that functionally. Like, I, listen, I've said this before, like God is not like, he's not surprised or confused or like, like he knows who we are, right? And he knows if there's genuine desire to honor him. He knows that. I could be up here faking in front of y'all, and y'all think, man, I can't wait to see Kurt and have any. Now, that ain't happening. <laughs> but I'm saying, I could be faking it. Like, it, God knows who's real and who isn't. So he knows where you are. 
it's okay to be in a place of struggle and not sure and, and have some challenges. Like that's a part of the Christian life, right? That's a part of it. But when I, when I talk about the relationship, just be honest with God and tell him like my greatest prayer times are not when I'm in front of you all and I'm real like logical and I sound really, my prayers, I'll be sitting right over there in the dome by myself on a Tuesday. And I'm like, man, Lord, you just wild sometimes. <laughs> I'll just, I mean, just be honest with them and tell them, look, I'm struggling with this. Like, I don't, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know how to do this. That's not, God's desire isn't that you become so overwhelmed that you shut down, that you become so overwhelmed that you pray up. So you talk to the Lord, ask him, like, Lord, I need help with this, and then come up with something small in that area. When we did the love series like two years ago, when I came back from sabbatical, that series began a real transformation for me to where I was like, you know what? Okay, I always thought I had to, be, I had to have this emotional connection with people to be biblically loving. And then it was clear, like, nah, I'm motivated because God loves me, not because they do. So I can try to be loving towards people, not whether they love me or not, because I'm motivated. So I started asking myself at times, okay, what's the action of love that's required right now? Not how do I need to feel, but what's the action? Love is patient. It's kind of, plenty of times throughout the week, I'd be like, all right, I need to not be rude, and I need to be kind. All right, I need to not insist on my own way. It doesn't matter if I'm like, hey, brother. Let me tell you something. Empa- <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that because there's all, there's all this love for stuff like empathy and sympathy. Sometimes it's not your personal disposition. Biblical love is like, I need to, have a, I need to be gentle and kindness towards you. I want to not insist on my own way. I want to not keep a record. All these different things. I want to be motivated by the love that God has commanded. So I'll ask myself this question, and then I act in faith. You have to know, obedience is about acting in faith. When obedience is about acting in feeling, then we're no different than anyone else. Obedience is is also a faith thing. It's like, okay, sometimes you got to take a deep breath and be like, all right, I'm going to try to be gentle and loving towards this person because, Lord, you know that they rubbed me the wrong way. They, they, I am a genie in their lamp, and they just keep rubbing that thing, and I'm just popping out. No, no, no. It's like, okay, Lord, I need to be. So I would pray first. Let the Lord know that. Acknowledge it. Like, don't, you don't got to hide that stuff from him. It's okay to tell him, Lord, this is hard for me. I don't enjoy this. I'm not sure how to do this. And then you look for a simple way. Ask yourself questions. And then, you at, then find someone that you trust that can help you, that can help you do this. Those are the things that we need to do in that situation. All right, I'm going to trust that the spirit is working. And because I'm going to the game, I'm not pressing for any more questions or holding on. We're going to move to communion. Don't get mad. Y'all know who your pastor is. Don't get mad. Don't be mad. This is not the day to talk to me after church. Catch me. Send me a text message. You know I'm going to the game. Y'all know this already. You accepted that when you came to this church. I'm going to the game. That's why I love y'all. I can be real with y'all. And I really mean it. Don't stop and ask me nothing. I'm gone. After the game. I'm kidding, sort of. All right. I don't want to, I'm not going to do a whole other speech for, for communion. It doesn't need that. The reality is, is that God has given us zeal for him and a righteousness that he requires. And we understand that. There are times where we will fall short of that consistently but let's not make that become the pattern of our life. Jesus is worth more than that. 
He's worth more than that. He's died on the cross, rose from the dead, given us his spirit. He's gracious and gentle and says, imitate me. And as difficult as it is sometimes, it's better to do that. We don't want to obey when it serves our purposes. We want to obey because it's his purpose for us. So we take this communion together as a reminder of the sacrifice of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the giving of his spirit, and the zeal that he requires that's not just in our intellectual agreement, but in our moral, our functional agreement. Let's eat this together. And we drink this as a reminder of the blood that was shed for us to have an accurate zeal and an accurate knowledge for his glory and our good. Let's drink this together. Father, we thank you that you've given us this and you accept. You know us. You know that there are going to be times we just don't measure up. There are going to be times we, in the moment, even give up. Sometimes we put that cross down, but Lord, I pray that in those moments that we wouldn't walk away from it. I pray that you would help us to remember if we forget everything else to persevere to the end, to keep believing. I pray that we remember that the difficult challenges in our life, as you said in James 2, 1, 2 through 4, is so that we can learn how to endure. We don't have to persevere when things are easy and fun. We persevere because they're challenging. And Lord, we all have a desire to define good and evil on our own, just like the Israelites did. Their flaw was they rejected Jesus for their own righteousness. I pray, Lord, that that would not be our flaw. And I don't mean we reject them intellectually, but we reject them functionally. Help us to be people that obey because we believe and not allow the grace that you've given us to make us believe that we don't have to obey as much as we should. For your glory and our good. Lord, be with your sons and daughters this week. Encourage those who haven't read or prayed to spend a little bit more time because of your goodness. Lord, may we be motivated by your goodness, by the conviction that comes from a good God, not the condemnation that comes from a lack of, we all lack. That's not the point of today. It's that we don't create a lifestyle and become comfortable with lacking. Because you've given us something more precious than that. And may my zeal for you far surpass any zeal for any team or, or song or, or anything for any of us, Lord. For your glory and our good. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, don't forget D groups this week, co ed groups, uh, Friday night, worship time, Saturday, youth meeting, uh, fifth to eighth grade, right here. We'll be here, have some fun. And don't forget, the following week is Thanksgiving, and the following Sunday is bring your pastor a plate. So that seems to be forgotten every year. So don't forget that. Don't have a zeal for God and not have it be based on economics. I love y'all, and I will see y'all when I see y'all.